Our topic today is Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. What's the plan? It's time for questions from the audience. Please come to the microphone over there. Remember to state your name. Keep your comments brief and your question short and succinct. This moderator is uh, too old to help unravel multiple questions. And uh, please, no questions from the floor as we want to record them for the website. Our speaker is the Honorable Rick Casson, and he's right back here at the podium. And as the years go by, I'm getting a little hard of hearing, so hopefully I can uh, hear the questions. Yeah, my name is Bob Giesbrecht. Hey, uh, Rick, you, uh, in your presentation, you never really mentioned the uh, upcoming deadline of 2011 and our proposed withdrawal in 2011. I wonder if you could clarify exactly what does withdrawal in that context mean? Given that we're members of NATO, we're not leaving NATO, I'm assuming. No, we're not. But, uh, well, uh, and thanks for that, because I think this is going to be a question that's going to have to be uh, answered uh, time and time again over the next few months as we get closer to this deadline. Canadians are becoming uh, more and more cognizant of that, and people around the world certainly are, and our, our allies are. Our, our uh, position is that uh, 2011 will end our combat role in Afghanistan. And uh, we're standing firm by that. We're under pressure from all sorts of areas uh, to continue to stay over there. But it becomes an issue of, uh, you know, we've been there over there for over 10 years. Canada's done more than its share. We're part of 60 other countries that are involved. Somebody else needs to step up and do that job. There will be, as I indicated, we have some priorities on development. I believe that will still need to happen. Will there be a military presence there to, uh, to offer security? I'm, I'm not sure, but you know it just makes sense that there would be. But as far as the as the as the war, the hunting, and uh, the engaging with the uh, Taliban, as uh, we're saying, that's going to end in 2011. As you know, the uh, U.S. has uh, indicated they may they haven't decided yet how, how big a contingent they're going to send. But uh, I think a lot of the other countries in the world are just sitting back, waiting to see what they're going to do. But there are, there are some that have been part of NATO, part of the international community, that have certainly uh, have the capacity and the ability to do more. And I think that's where uh, some of these people that are trying to encourage us to stay longer should be focusing their efforts. Go ahead, sir. Uh, Terry Shillington. Uh, I'm really pleased to be here after a year and a half's absence, but I, I really appreciate your presence, Rick, uh, and the chance to have this conversation with a member of the government around this issue. And what I'd like to do, uh, you probably caught Gwyn Dyer's uh, uh, editorial on, in Sunday's paper, but what I'd like to do is, quote, uh, make reference to a couple of his points and then invite you to comment on them. Thank you. Uh, but it's entitled The Road Out of Afghanistan because uh, in Gwyn Dyer's perspective, it's an utterly futile military exercise. And he makes the point that there are very few al-Qaeda members in um, in Afghanistan, you'll find them in Somalia, Yemen, uh, Pakistan, a number of other countries, but very few in, in, uh, in um, uh, Afghanistan. And he also um, names the, the Washington think, and I would uh, bracket George Bush uh, thinking that, that uh, the political affairs in Afghanistan and American security are closely linked. And when I hear you start 
your presentation as you did today with the, I, I presume it's an official statement from the government about um, uh, our purposes to protect Canadian citizens from terrorist attacks. Uh, I presume that uh, that sounds very familiar to what, what traditional Washington think has been on this. So I, I just invite you to comment on that. Uh, really, it's a question about why the heck are we there uh, when the military exercise seems futile. Good. Well, Terry, thanks for that. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I guess that's been the debate since uh, <clears throat> the decision was made to go over to Afghanistan. How do you, de how do you balance the uh, military campaign against the development campaign? How do you, how do you restore the governance in that country? And, and, the, and, you know, for a while it was, well, how many dollars you're spending on the military and how many dollars you're spending on aid? Well, we've got away from that, and, and thank goodness we have, but uh, because I think we're doing uh, we're doing the right thing in both areas. But the the uh, you know the idea that either and this is what you're getting to with George Bush's comment: we either take them on over there, or we'll have to fight them here. I think that to look further at that is the is the fact, and I mentioned it in my statement that <clears throat> we cannot allow Afghanistan, or actually any country in the world to become a lawless state where, where uh, people like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda can run free at will. The Taliban can impose their extremist beliefs on an entire country and just let them run amok and not have some kind of, um, there's no governance, uh, there was no governance, there's no police, there's no recourse. So they were able to sit there and plan uh, 2011, or um, uh, 2001, the attack uh, on the world. And so and I, and I think this is a message we have to make sure that everybody understands in the world that this, this is an international issue. And, and certainly Pakistan. Um, Pakistan has uh, recently stepped up a little better in trying to control the fact that the Taliban could come in and attack our folks and the, and the Afghans and then run back across the border uh, with immunity. And uh, now that's starting to change to some degree. So I, I believe, uh, Terry, that... Uh, the, you know that statement indicates that we have to keep a, a government over there. We have to have law and order, and we just can't have these uh, terrorist organizations able to prosper and flourish and plan without uh, without any um, consequence. The issue of the road out of Afghanistan. You know, I uh, mentioned 40 years of war. The Russians are in there, and then 10 years of civil unrest. And then the international force is back in now, and it's still uh, still quite uh, alarming. I, I would I would like to mention though, I, I did have a conversation with a young fellow that has spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, and he's uh, he's trying to promote investment in Afghanistan, and he's he's telling me, and in many regions of the country, the people are quite satisfied with the security and the situation that they live under. It's not 100 percent. It certainly isn't the same type of situation we live under in Canada, but they uh, they feel that they can function and they can flourish under that. And so there's there's people you know in the private sector trying to uh, trying to get that kind of development going. So when you hear something like that from a guy, he's not not a member of an NGO, he's not a government guy or anybody else. He's just a, a guy uh, on the ground over there trying to help that country through de development. When he says that a lot of the people he talks to are happy with the or happy might not be the right word, but that they accept the situation that exists and they can function. I think it just goes to show we're, we are in the toughest part of the country, uh, there's no doubt, and that's where most of the action is. And so uh, what you hear is from that area, and there is the odd thing that goes on elsewhere, but uh, certainly the majority of the bad stuff happens down there. But it will be a long road out. If our military um, 
or if our combat role ends in 2011, certainly our development role and our working with the government and trying to create the human capacity for them to take over for themselves, whether it's the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police. We're, we have people right inside of government departments teaching them how to govern. You know, they don't know how, and uh, so there's all of these things that we're dealing with, and uh, it'll be a long time to get it straightened out, but it's, it's, a, it's a task worth, worth taking on. Sir. Douglas Mitchell. Mr. Kasson, uh, I have to say that I tend to agree with Mr. Shillington's comment regarding the futility of this exercise. There are some issues, however, you did happen to mention Pakistan, which obviously is a very significant concern in the total picture. The other question I'd like to address is Islamic fundamentalism and Islamic beliefs and how are we as, a, as a, a Christian society going to impose these beliefs on these people? These are things that worry me. Another item that has come up in the press is the treatment of prisoners, and I wonder if you could have a comment on that. And I must say, I, my eyes glaze over when we get into the details of the military aspects of this, which you have addressed. Okay, thank you. Well, Pakistan, as I indicated, uh, we were down in the United States with our committee and we met with uh, quite a few <clears throat> different departments. And they don't talk about Afghanistan without talking about Pakistan. They're, they're, they call it AVPAC. And they're, to them, they're tied together. And I think the world's starting to realize that with this, with this ability to go back and forth across the border to plan and to, to rebuild and to rearm and then come in and, and do what you did, Pakistan had to do something. And the one comment that I, I heard was, in most instances, in most countries where some of this is going on, there comes a tipping point where the, where the population will not tolerate or stand back any longer to see what's happening. And we've seen that in the, in the past in the world. And there, some think that there's, a tip, there's going to be a tipping point in Pakistan where the people are going to say enough. And, and I think that's why we've seen the government over there react. When the Taliban and some of the forces were moving closer and closer to one of the uh, reactors, nuclear reactors, that kind of got their attention. And let's not forget that Pakistan usually faces their forces the other way uh, between Pakistan and India. So they have that whole issue to deal with as well. And then we have China and all of the other interesting countries around uh, Afghanistan. So it's kind of in a unique spot. As far as Islamic fundamentalists, uh, we, I think it's important that we, and extremists, and we, it's important that we understand that this, these are extremists they're not a representative of the uh, Islamic uh, community. But we, the other day, our commander over there um, was out and on a patrol, and a lot of our young men and women got uh, blown apart. They didn't get killed, but they were severely injured. And he, he went to the villagers and said, look, you have the capacity to warn us and tell us that these things are going on, and we want you to start doing that. Why are we here as a nation losing our best and uh, bravest young men and women when you won't even come out of your house and tell us that there's an IED in the road. And so that caused a bit, of a bit of a stir. But I think that's a message that has to be relayed. And they do it because of fear and retribution from the Taliban. If they do that, they come in and they'll take their oldest son and kill him and hang him in the square or whatever. And this happens. And we're not inventing this stuff. But uh, to be able, for them to be able to do that is where we, as an international force, have to instill in them that we are there. We're there for the long haul. And we are going to return that country to normalcy, and you're not going to have to worry about being governed by the Taliban again. And they are not convinced of that just yet, the people that I've talked to. 
the, this group of uh, local uh, counselors that we sat down with, very guarded comments, I, I must say. And, and they're hard to read when you're working with an interpreter. You're trying to get facial expressions and body language and things. And, and it wasn't very, um, you know, we weren't lean, leaning forward at, towards each other eagerly with open arms, let's say that, where they weren't. So they were, they were trying to tell us, but some of it was the same rhetoric. We need you. We need your money. We need your investment. But the one telling tale was this young lady. Uh, she was a very beautiful young lady. I had some, she worked in a, in an orphanage, and I had some toys and bubbles and things that one of my staff had given me, so I, I had given them to her. But just getting down, she says, you know, I'm just trying to help a lady learn how to raise chickens to sell eggs to help her family. And this is a basic. We're trying to get houses for our, our, um, for our people. We need jobs. And don't be bringing in caterpillars and ukes and all kinds of big equipment. You buy us a bunch of shovels and a wheelbarrow, and give a thousand men a job instead of bringing in one of those big machines, and we'll be happy. Give us jobs, give us the security to, to raise our children, and, and give us education. So that, that that you know, so they want to the help, but they don't think somebody sitting in Ottawa or Washington or Brussels or in New York City can tell them what they need. They know what they need, and they want us to listen to them. And so I think that was a, a, one of the messages that I brought back. But the um, the the story was told of. Uh, uh, and it, it was more, it was more of a story to be told against against us than for us because the school had been lit on fire by the Taliban. The, there was girls going to the school, so they went at night and uh, tried to burn the school down. And they're not schools like like we have. You have to understand they're mostly one or two rooms and very rudimentary. And they bur lit this on fire. The local people tried to have find somebody to help them put it out. So it, what, what eventually happened was the guys from our PRT in Kandahar took their rapid response team out and put this fire out. But it burned one wall off and, and half of the roof, one wall down and half the roof. And, uh, and uh, he said, and we didn't get any help doing that until the Canadians showed up. And so where was everybody else? However, he did say that the next day, the students and the teachers were back in that school with a roof off it and one wall burnt because they understand fully how important education is to them. And, so, and girls getting acid thrown on them, trying to walk to school. And it, it, like these, are, these are horrific, horrific uh, um, beliefs that some of these people have and uh, to work around that. The one thing I did get from this meeting, I, I'm not trying to <laughs> I know we'll be running out of time, but I did get from this meeting with these counselors was this whole issue of trying to impose a central government from Kabul over top of a tribal system. That is going to be a, a task that uh, brighter people than I are going to have to try to figure that out. Even with the farmers, you know, growing poppies, there, there, there was no, there's no financial system, there's no uh, advance from the elevator or from anybody or from the bank. They bring the they bring the poppy seeds in the spring with a couple hundred dollars, and here's the money that you can live on for the summer. I'll be back in the fall to buy your crop, and so they, they do it because they have no other means of growing it. When we were there, there was a bad drought on, and they were they were and the one gentleman said we were reduced to eating corn. They the corn is for animals, and so they were reduced to eating cornmeal, and, uh, and so we said, well, why why on earth don't you grow wheat? And grow enough for you and your neighbor, and uh, and so they got into the story of uh, this kind of a financial system that exists with the poppy, poppy uh, farming, but poppy growth was down, and I think this is one of the key things of this uh, Dollar Dam re rehabilitation. If we can guarantee water like we do in southern Alberta here, on most most years, and then we can we know what we can do here. Can you imagine what we can do there with the heat, and the fertile soil and water? They could grow anything, and uh, grow enough to feed that country.
Oh, the prisoners. I didn't want to. I'm sorry. Yes, there's a there's a debate on right now because the this commission that's been struck to look into the transfer of prisoners. There's a change of leadership there, but uh, I am hopeful because I've been assured that uh, this uh, investigation will continue, and in the end, Canadians will actually know what happened there. Go ahead. I appreciate the opportunity to ask a question, Mr. Cassin. Um I think it, it's a common belief before. Canada committed to going to Afghanistan or sending troops into Afghanistan, um, that Canada didn't really have any known world enemies. And we're pretty well respected given our past of, I think, um, rooted in peacekeeping and helping out nations. Um, and in your presentation, there was the three words of clear, hold, and build, um, kind of like I guess that'd be a strategy or the circumstances in which Afghanistan will come to prosper. And it kind of reminded me of in Iraq when, you know, the United States went in there and they cleared out um, Hussein and all his followers. And, and when they came to the, like, holding that, make sure there's not going to be too much of a resistance using the military force. And then when it came to building, they were using a lot of American um, mm. private industry. So for every American soldier, I think there's 150,000 American, or, uh, yeah, American soldiers, there was about two private contractors. And I find it interesting that Minister Day is in charge overseeing the leadership in the Afghan mission, being that he's the Minister of you know, Canada's International Trade. And I'm curious if it's Mr. Day being the minister in charge overseeing you know, the Afghan mission, um, is he there providing Canadian businesses the opportunity to help build in Afghanistan? And, and if that is so... Um, I, I think a, a concern I have with that is that for the amount of so now Canadian businesses and North American businesses are going to go over there and going to help be, be part of the reconstructing of Afghanistan to make it prosper once again but I think that leaves out Afghanis taking part in the helping out and building themselves up which leads to people who, poverish, who are impoverished now the way that you've told us growing up and now all of a sudden Canada appears to have an enemy now there's a reason, there's a justification how do you address that? Well, first of all, I, I believe Stock D is the chairman of this uh, special cabinet committee because Stock D is a good, uh, a good, a good minister and a good leader, uh, and shown himself to be quite a quality guy. And uh, the prime minister has the trust in him to do that. I don't think there's anything else uh, involved there. And the, and the clear hold and build, and, and that's what the U.S. military leader in Afghanistan has said that we're going to clear an area of Taliban, we're going to hold it, and keep it that way, and then we're going to rebuild. Who does that? As I indicated, they've told us, uh, don't bring over the, all these big fancy equipments. Give us jobs first. And, and that's critical. If we, if we forget the everyday Afghan person is there trying to make a living, trying to feed his family, trying to keep a roof over us, that very rudimentary, um, you know, getting back to the basics that we all learned uh, in our school days, then how can, we, how can we think we'll ever win them over? We, we won't. And so we have to have them involved. They have to have some return. On the base at Kandahar Airfield, uh, there's you know twelve to 15,000 people on that base at any one time. Every day there's 1,500 or so Afghan locals come on that base to work. And they go through their most rigorous uh, searches and, and ID process you ever saw. It's just like a lineup at Disneyland when they come on. But they, they do that to make 10 U.S. dollars a day to help feed their families. So they're trying as best they can to, to engage the Afghan people. The, the issue you, may, you make of, uh, of a country that had no enemies, well, don't forget there was a couple dozen Canadians died in New York on 2011. And um, 
We, we sometimes forget that. Or t- 2001, I keep saying 2011, you got it on my brain here. The um, uh, 9-11. And so uh, that, that got us involved. I will remember well, the, the uh, Prime Minister of, of uh, Australia spoke to us in the House of Commons, and his comments were this, and I, I somewhat believe this as well, that if you think that you can tr- roll up in the corner and pretend they aren't there, you can't. Because they just hate us for who we are and what we believe in. And uh, Canada is a free and democratic society um, with a Christian base is, uh, is something that they, don't, they won't tolerate. So the fact that uh, we are who we are and they are who, we, who they are creates that animosity. So I, I, I'm, I believe that if we just stayed back and we didn't send anybody over there, then we, would, we wouldn't have any issue with them coming to us. I, I don't believe that because they already did in a way. Thank you. Hello, Mr. Casson. My name is Naomi Kramer, and I work at the University of Lethbridge. I brought along a photo of my nephew, uh, who just deployed to Afghanistan this past Thanksgiving Monday. And I wanted to thank you and the Canadian government for, um, um, you know, supporting our country and supporting my nephew because because of the military, he was able to complete his third year out of a four-year program at Theovel. Um, on the University of Lethbridge satellite campus in Edmonton. So he's put his education on hold because he believes in this mission so dearly. So my family and I would like to thank you and the government for your support of all of our troops, and I ask everybody for your prayers uh, for my nephew and all of our troops overseas. So I don't have any questions for you at this time. Just thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Naomi, and I'll, I'll certainly forward that on to uh, the Prime Minister and Minister McKay. One of the things that we, uh, when I, my previous job before I was asked to sit on this Afghanistan, or chair of the Afghanistan Committee, I was a chair of the uh, Standing Committee on National Defense, and we were doing a study of the quality of life in the military with a focus on post-traumatic stress disorder because it is a huge issue. Our, our veterans are uh, younger and younger all the time. We have our uh, We have our traditional Korean and World War II veterans, and even we were discussing a World War I veteran that lives in Lethbridge still, uh, Don, the other day, 105 years old. The, um, but we have more and more young people coming out, and so what is the focus? How do we deal with them? They're coming out of the military. They're, they're younger. They need jobs. They need advice. They need direction, and they need support. The one thing that we were told, particularly with post-traumatic stress disorder, is there's certain parts of the country where there's lots of, lots of support. If you're stationed close to a major center, Edmonton, um, maybe even Petawawa, close to uh, Ottawa or Toronto or, or one of the bigger centers, you're fine. But if you're not, then how do you get the kind of help and support that you need? And a lot of that comes through your, your commanding officer and your unit. But then if you're a reservist or if you move away and you lose that contact, then here you, you are lost. And it takes sometimes it takes months and months for PTSD to, to, to kick in. And it causes all kinds of problems in families. And so we, we really have, have started to put a focus on that. But we have trouble getting resources such as trained people, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, medical doctors uh, in the military. And so that's an ongoing struggle as we try to recruit. But uh, Question, please. Certainly the um, – yeah, just one, one more second. Certainly the, uh, the thanks that you give is something that uh, we very, very much appreciate, and we wish your nephew the best. Sir. Thank you. My name is James Moore. 
Mr. Kassan, you passed a bill or were instrumental in getting a bill <clears throat> through the House of Commons on raising the age of informed consent to 16 years. And I think the logic of that bill was that perhaps, you know, people younger than 16 could not, weren't developed enough to, to make an informed consent. Uh, your government has challenged and is challenging to the Supreme Court of Canada why a 15-year-old Canadian who's presently in Gautama for nine years uh, should be there. You know, your law about informed consent seems to be contradicted logically there. This case uh, is the only Canadian in Gautama, the on only person from a Western country in Guantamo Bay, and apparently what, he's, what he did was uh, threw a grenade at people who were shooting at him. Without going into the details of that, I think there's another incident last week which I would like you to talk about informed consent in terms of you know, the logic of your bill and child soldiers because last week there were a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old boy who were killed by Canadian soldiers, and they were unarmed, and they had no explosives, and the officer in charge dismissed it as they were fighting-age males. How do you expect uh, Canada's credibility in the world and the logic of your own, I think, very passionate defense of informed consent to square with this reality? James, I, I think we're getting a little bit off the off Afghanistan topic, but uh, if Mr. Casson is prepared to answer that, I don't think we'll have any objections. Yeah, I won't. I won't take uh, a lot of the remaining time. But uh, no, I, I, James, I appreciate that because a lot of people in Canada feel very passionately about the Omar Carter issue and and the, the unfortunate uh, incidents that take place in a war zone when when um, civilians are killed. Uh, I know that our, our men and women, I've talked to them about this, that they, uh, their rules of engagement are very clearly laid out to them, and they, uh, they make darn sure that they're within those parameters. And so when they act, they act uh, in the belief that they're doing the, what's been asked of them to do. But Omar Carter has been accused of some pretty serious uh, issues, um, you know, throwing a grenade, killing an American soldiers, soldier, and he's in an American uh, institution. And we, we have, you know, <laughs> just discussed this many times. Uh, but the, the whole issue is the fact that he is, he is charged, he is under the, this, this um, charge of the system that he's in now. And until that uh, comes to a head, there's very little that the Canadian government can do be, besides, uh, I don't know, go down there and get him somehow. But uh, And to, to, re to relate Omar Cotter to... Uh, to my support of a bill that raised the age of sexual consent from 14 to 16 is something that has never entered my mind, I must say that, because I think it's two separate things. I did that to protect the kids in Canada from sexual predators and give them two more years to be kids. I uh, think we have uh, time for one more question. Please go ahead. Well, we're going to get a sugar beet question now, maybe. <laughs> John Zinster, how are you, sir? <laughs> very good, Rick. Thank you very much uh, for the uh, informative talk you gave. And uh, it all helps, like, you know, to get more information to us because 
there is so much about Afghanistan and Pakistan, and we don't understand, and it's such a, a different culture down there. And and whenever some of the our boys get shot up or die or whatnot, you know, if you were to raise the hands down here on the, or on the street or whatnot, the general consensus is, boys, come home, come home. I had some visitors from Holland over the class, one of my classmates and whatnot, and uh, Holland has about a similar contingency as what uh, Canada has down there. I'm originally from Holland, and I was born during the Second World War, and I'm very proud that Holland is down there as well. Uh, I says, what's the consensus in Holland, like, you know, about uh, Afghanistan? Oh, he says, it's very simple. Boys, come home. Get the heck out of there. You know, and you say now, we're we going to get out of there in 2011. It's... A, ter- uh, a troubling feeling for me, I was born during the war under the Germans, and if and I we were liberated, and I'm very proud of it, by the Canadians, I'm very happy about that. If the Allied troops, after four years, would have said, hey, boys, D-Day is not going to come, this is not going to work, the heck with you, we're pulling out. Where would we have been? And that gives a total different feeling. And I gave that to my classmate. He says, I never thought of it that way. So I have more of a comment than, than a question, but maybe you want to comment some more about that. No, and John, and that's, and that's fair, and that's been, uh, that's been talked about it quite a bit. And uh, how, do you, how do you put an end date on a war without winning it? But let's just remember we're part of a, you know, a, a 60 other countries that are in there that are fully capable of doing we have uh, we have done a lot. We've, I wouldn't say we've overextended ourselves, but we've pretty much gone to the limit of what we can do. And we're rotoing uh, third and fourth time people going in. I was just talking to somebody here that they're um, they're uh, well, Bridget, third time or second time back, and a friend of hers, not her, no, a friend of hers. But so when when do you have to when do you have to say okay, uh, we we just have done all we can. We've done our share, and it's time for somebody else to step forward. And I think we've reached that point. And uh, the, the fact that you can say, okay, the war's not over, we're stepping out and, and relaying it back to the Allies, you're right. If we would have left then, what would have happened? But uh, we're hoping that somebody else is going to fill the void that we, that we have, uh, that we'll create there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rick, for taking time out of your schedule to come give us this special presentation. And thanks very much to the audience for asking uh, very serious questions on this very serious topic. And we'll see you next week in the library and back here. Well, if I could just say uh, I just want to wish you and your organization continued success, your uh, institution in Southern Alberta, as you know. And uh, you bring forward uh, topics of debate that are keenly interested to Southern Albertans on all issues. And uh, how many years has it been? I'm not sure that SACPA has been in now. Gordon, Gordon, do you know? How long has Sackbaugh been involved? Or 40, and you've been involved, all of them. Yeah, good for you. Thank you.